0: I'm Marianne kolbisak mcgee Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with Zach Martin, who is Senior Advisor at law firm Venable and lead author of a new health information sharing and analysis center, White Paper, Examining Zero Trust in Healthcare. So, Zach, as you examined zero trust in healthcare, what were some of the unique challenges that healthcare entities face in implementing zero trust, including compared with organizations in other sectors, and why? Basically, the
1: biggest challenge would be the IoT devices, so Internet of Things. Healthcare has so many different devices throughout their ecosystem, blood pressure cuffs, oxygen sensors the telecommunication devices that caregivers wear around their necks and making sure that those devices are authenticated and authorized to be on that network is a huge task it's just because they don't necessarily have the processing power or the you know the, the ability to do the encryption as necessary in a zero trust architecture i would also say that digital identity is also another Potential challenge um, as caregivers are moving from room to room and on mobile devices. Zero Trust has, has a concept of there's session termination, so you have basically have to reauthenticate and be reauthorized continually throughout the process, and that could just be as caregivers are you know treating patients, going about their day to day, and having to cons- consistently reauthenticate could be not a great user experience.
0: Zach, you mentioned authentication, and as the report notes, at the core of zero trust is an identity-centric approach to cybersecurity that prioritizes the use of multi-factor authentication and also fine-grained authorization and access rules. But as we know, the use of multi-factor authentication across healthcare sector entities, especially for remote access, seems to be pretty spotty. Why do you think that's the case?
1: part of the reason multi-factor authentication is challenging like for remote access it's a matter of getting the different technologies out to people and make not all multi-factor authentication is created equal so like SMS OTP is fairly easily fishable and you, know, you should be looking at something that has a little bit more heft to it push-based MFA at a minimum but uh, if you could get some keys out there that that is even preferable to that but in the actual healthcare environment The challenge is how do you reauthorize? Like people, you can't, biometrics is not a great modality because people are wearing gloves, people are wearing masks. It's hard to to do that kind of authentication in in the healthcare environment. And then having somebody pull on a mobile phone to authenticate to a different device, it's it's not a great user experience. And you need to figure out a, a better way to do that. There are all sorts of risk-based authentication measures that are that are coming to light, which can help on this, where it basically is looking at where are you coming in from? What's your IP address? What's your geolocation? What device are you coming in from? What's the serial number of that device? What operating system is it using? And it takes all of those attributes and it creates a risk score that can be used to basically enable authentication and authorization to make sure you are who you say you are.
0: Zach, what about fine-grained authorization and access rules, how do they translate into healthcare settings and what are the obstacles with that?
1: Well, again, the, the obstacles here are you just, you need to reevaluate. Just because someone's a nurse on the cardio floor, you just can't give them that role and to get access to all those applications. You need to make sure that they only, they have access to those specific applications and then the data within those applications. So if they're treating patients in rooms, one through five, they don't need to see, they don't necessarily need to see the patient information for the patients in rooms five through 10. So that's something that you need to, so you need to put those roles in place and put that authorization. And some of this has to be dynamic, like on a day-to-day basis, you don't know who you're coming in, who you're going to be treating. So you just need to make sure that the authorization is accurate and timely and done the right way. And it's just, it's going to cause a lot of healthcare organizations to have to revamp what they do. Like basically, you get a role or two roles or three roles, and then you kind of go about what you're doing. And, and, you know, it's this requires a little bit more work on the back end.
0: You mentioned timeliness, and as we know, in certain healthcare environments, for instance, you know, emergency departments, hospitals, surgery, that sort of thing, timely access to the information that a clinician needs, even with devices and other sort of supplementary systems that clinicians depend upon timely information being accessible when needed is very important what kind of obstacles does that all pose to entities that are trying to navigate into zero trust but how do they kind of reconcile
1: all of this you basically have to sort of come up with different roles so you're looking at a big healthcare provider like i'm in the chicago area so you look at like a a north shore which they have clinical settings, you know, I take my kids in to see the pediatrician, then they have hospital settings. So you would basically just need to set up the different role based on where someone is, or how they're being treated, like where they are. So if you're in an exam room at the clinician's office, it's one thing, but then if you're walking around with a tablet or a cart on wheels, in a hospital setting, it's a different group of settings.
0: So, Zach, as we know, also there's a push to provide patients with timely access to their health information. How does patient access impact a zero trust approach in healthcare?
1: You could definitely take a zero trust approach to patient access to healthcare information. It's both more complicated and a little bit easier all at the same time. Because basically the roles are a little bit simpler. It's like, okay, you're a patient. But what you need to put in place is, what, as, as I mentioned before, is that kind of that risk engine, like that, that constant authorization. It's like, I'm logging in, you need to implement multi-factor authentication, which I don't know how many healthcare providers are doing MFA for patients. I haven't seen that. And then you need to do that risk scoring. So you need to make sure that if I'm logging into my account. That I'm not logging in from Russia or Nigeria, and that I'm not trying, and that the device hasn't been jailbroken, and that the operating system, or it's a device that you've seen before, that you know what's going on with it. So there are challenges to it, but basically, there's also the possibility that you know you're coming in, and you see the IP addresses coming from Russia, and it's like I don't think this is the right person. You know, they live in the Chicago area. So, but MFA for patient access is not something that I've seen a lot. I think that could be complex, especially as a lot of older folks are not necessarily used to MFA. And that could be just a challenge from the user perspective because you got to make these systems user friendly too.
0: And when it comes to patients, there's been a lot of long going debate about a national unique patient identifier, which has basically been banned. How much does the lack of a unique national patient identifier play into some of the challenges that healthcare entities face in terms of patient access? Does that play into that much, do you think? Or even for clinicians accessing their correct records?
1: I don't know if it really plays into patient access as much. I think it it more impacts the clinician access. Because if I get wheeled into an emergency room and I have my driver's license on me and now my name's a little slightly different than John Smith. But if a John Smith gets pulled into an emergency room, you don't know. It's, it's difficult to be able to find out who that individual is and whether or not they're diabetic or they're allergic to penicillin or they have any number of other pre-existing conditions that can complicate their care. It's definitely a challenge. So I'll just give a quick preview. One of the other things we are working on for Health ISEC is looking at identity proofing in healthcare as well, and kind of trying to figure out what is the best way for healthcare organizations to do identity proofing to make sure that there are no data breaches, um, that people accessing records are who they say they are, even in a remote virtual environment.
0: And when it comes to identity proofing in healthcare, what are some of the top challenges that you're seeing that you're probably gonna be diving into?
1: Well, a lot of it's usability. It's not so much on the provider side necessarily, because at some point relatively early in a a person's interactions with a physician, they're coming in in person. So when you come in in person, you're showing a driver's license, you're showing an insurance card, the insurance information is being validated. And there's a very high likelihood you are who you say you are at that point in time. What should be done, and I think some organizations are doing it, is that information should then be populated into the electronic health record so that people, that ha- that account has a higher degree of assurance. Where it gets more complicated is with the telehealth visits or like pharmacy or insu- health insurance, you know, making sure that people applying are who they say they are. And knowledge-based verification is still a popular Way to do um, identity proofing, which is those are the questions that ask you, you know, what bank holds your mortgage or how much do you still owe on your car, and those are pretty easily fooled at this point in time. So there is a lot of new technology out there, and I'm going to go back again to the risk story. Like if somebody's coming in and creating an account and everything looks good, then they should be able to go on their account, and then when they show up. Show the driver's license, it's like check another box on the electronic health record and, you know, confirm they are who they say they are. But multi-factor authentication is another big thing that needs to happen.
0: And so, Zach, you mentioned earlier on about devices, IOT devices, medical devices, mobile devices being one of the obstacles. What can be done in terms of these devices being more embraced in terms of part of this zero trust approach? For instance, is this something that the manufacturers themselves will have to address in terms of some of the controls even to use these
1: devices? It's a combination. So the so manufacturer of the devices will have to add the ability that these devices could be authorized and authenticated on networks. So that is a big, if they can't do that and they have to be identified individually, it's not like, okay, but there are six phone sensors in the cardio unit operating at this time. It's like, no. This is John has this one, Linda has this one, Jeremy has this one. You know, it has to be identified with an, a specific individual and then it has to be authorized to conduct the transaction. So there is some of that aspect of things on the device side, but then it's also the underlying system that supports it also needs to be able to be able to take that information, consume it, know what to do with it, and then enable a transaction to happen.
0: And finally, Zach, how has the pandemic affected zero trust in healthcare? Has it made things more difficult? Has it changed sort of what's expected?
1: I don't think it's changed anything at all. I, I think that, again, yeah, zero trust has been around for 10 years, the concept. It's gaining a lot of popularity now because uh, President Biden's executive order on cybersecurity um, calling for, for zero trust architecture in federal systems. So healthcare, I feel is fairly nascent with zero trust at this point. I feel that they're just kind of trying to figure out what it is and how they can start deploying bits and pieces of it so that they can kind of see how it works and see where it goes. You know, We have some comments in in the paper about what organizations can do, kind of start their zero trust journey. And it's a matter of looking at what systems you have in place, what devices you have in place, Basically taking the inventory, seeing what you have, what the capabilities of those systems and devices are, and then kind of figuring out how to move forward from that point. There aren't many organizations that are far along in zero trust. It's still, as much as it's been around for a while, a lot. Of it's still relatively emerging field.
0: Well, thanks so much, Zach. I've been speaking to Zach Martin. I'm Marianne Kolbusak mcgee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for joining us.